Okay, if you've got a Bible, then please turn to Mark chapter 5. It's been great to worship. It's been great also, hasn't it, to hear good things that God's been doing, particularly a couple of stories of healing that we could have had more. Somebody else came forward and, uh, you know, that God has been doing some good things. We've been uh, praying for the sick recently. And um, if you're a visitor, we believe that God is real. He's not just a concept in our minds. He's not just a philosophical idea. He is a real living God who has reached out to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we are here as ordinary people who have met with him. And our story is he's changed our lives. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we look to a story in the Gospel of Mark to be open to the possibility that Jesus is real and that he can change your life. We're going to look at a story uh, of healing, actually. Well, two healings. It's a story within a story. And I want to talk about the whole issue of faith this morning. We've heard from Chica about how she initially didn't feel anything tangible and then as she just held on to God and believed, as the week went on, she felt a clear improvement physically in her situation. We're going to look at the issue of essential faith this morning, which is a a theme that comes right through the Gospels. And uh, we're going to learn about what that means to us. I felt personally very challenged by this. I believe God increasingly wants us to be those that are taking uh, initiatives in faith, that we step out of the boat, as it were, and um, respond to what God calls us to, In many ways, not really knowing where we're going and what's going to happen at times. Um, God wants to encourage us increasingly to be a people who are expressing a risky, radical kind of faith. Amen? And uh, so we're going to look at that this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is one of the uh, people who is very close to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And um, he writes one of four Gospels in our Bible And uh, Mark's Gospel, if you put it in movie terms, is like an action movie. It is fast-moving, it's full of action, you get the phrase immediately that comes up again and again, and it is packed full of kingdom activity as Jesus moves from place to place, touching lives, changing hearts, healing bodies, delivering people of oppression, and setting to rights... Uh, what has been a mess, really, in many cases in their lives. And so we're going to look at one of those accounts. I'm going to read from verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words should be up on the screen behind me. And, uh, and then we're going to just unpack this story and uh, apply it to, to our lives. So Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. 
For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. We've got a story within a story here. And one of the dominant themes that comes through is the issue and importance of faith in Jesus. In many ways, that's the deciding factor that we have to face up to in these accounts and in these stories. Jesus goes to pray for Jairus' daughter, and as he's going, the woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years reaches out and touches the edge of his overcoat, and in that instant, immediately, she's healed. Jesus then, of course, goes and raises a 12-year-old girl from her deathbed. But then, in dramatic contrast, we find Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, in his hometown, incapable of doing any mighty work there. Why? Because of their unbelief. I think throughout the passage, we're confronted with the essential part that faith plays in terms of the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Here, of course, it's the issue of healing. But the reality is 
that wherever and whenever we want to see God's kingdom come and break in and advance amongst us and within the communities that God's placed us in, faith is an essential issue. It is the deciding factor, often. It's a big subject, and we're not going to extensively look at the whole issue of faith this morning, but I believe there's much here in these stories that we can be challenged by and provoked by, and I hope stirred by, to be those that have increasing measures of faith for our own lives and situations, and for the mission that God's called us to in this place and in this district. I want to draw out a number of things that we're faced with here. And the first one is the reality that faith is essential. It is essential. It is absolutely indispensable when it comes to approaching Jesus and experiencing the breaking in of his kingdom. And we see here, demonstrated in a very graphic way, what scripture actually explicitly teaches us elsewhere. In Hebrews 11... The writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's the truth that we find fleshed out in these real life examples and stories. And it's underlined here, I think, in a number of ways. Jairus, first of all, comes to Jesus in faith. He says to Jesus... Lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. That's an attitude and an approach of faith in Jesus. The woman, of course, reaches out and touches his garment by faith. Jesus turns to her and says, it's your faith that's made you well. Jesus himself demonstrates and exudes an amazing faith through these stories. He rejects the news that the little girl who was sick is now dead and so there's no point now visiting his home. He turns to Jairus and he says, look, don't be afraid, just believe. And in faith, Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And in faith, he says, little girl, get up, be healed. In contrast, of course, to this wonderful kind of atmosphere of faith that we find running through these stories in chapter 5, there is an absolute absence of faith in the story at the beginning of chapter 6, where somehow mysteriously, because the people in his hometown are so overly familiar with this carpenter and so gripped with a resistant unbelief, to the possibility that he is who he's been claiming to be, Jesus can do no mighty work in that town. And so we find here the reality that faith is crucial. And I think if we're going to approach these stories and accounts honestly, we have to conclude and embrace and face up to the challenge that there is something pivotal about the presence or absence of faith when it comes to encountering Jesus, approaching Jesus, and seeing the kingdom of God breaking in. We may not understand how it works, and we're going to look at that. But we must accept that there's something absolutely essential about faith when it it comes to seeing God's kingdom advance. 
One of the chapters that speaks in the Bible more loudly and clearly than any other on the issue of faith is Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? And in the writer's concluding remarks after he's been describing the great heroes of faith, he speaks about how faith is a prerequisite for any kind of kingdom advance and progress. In verse 33 and 35 he says of those heroes of faith that that through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Faith is an absolute prerequisite for all kinds of kingdom extension and advance. We must heed this. The reality is, of course, that faith is the very doorway into the kingdom. If you're here this morning and you're looking on and you're wondering what's going on with these people in this place and the way they're somehow meaningfully expressing their love and personal affection for God and Jesus Christ. How has that happened? Well, it's very simple. We have come to faith. We have put faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We've believed on him. We've trusted in who he is and in his claims that he has made. And we have handed over our lives to him as an expression of our faith to him. Faith is the doorway into the kingdom. Faith is essential to any kingdom advance. And so if we're going to be effective, not just in terms of praying for the sick, but in any situation where we're seeking to bring the kingdom of God into our towns and cities, you know, we think of the soup service or practical things that we do or praying for the sick or preaching the gospel, faith is an absolute prerequisite. And I want to encourage us to be a people of faith. Without faith, we will not see any progress in the mission that God's called us to. Now, I'm emphasising this because, well, first and foremost, I believe it's an emphasis here in the story. But the reality is, in modern Britain, we don't do faith well, do we? It's not part of our cultural makeup as 21st century Britons. Our default cry when anything unusual or astonishing happens is what? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And we say things, don't we, like no seeing is believing. You see, faith is not part of our cultural default makeup, if you like. Our default position actually is often one of unbelief. And so we have to be challenged by this. We have to confront this in ourselves. We have to ask God for his grace to create faith in us. Because all around us in our culture, there is staunch, persistent, resistant unbelief. And in the midst of that, we are called to be a community of faith who believe God to do the impossible. Amen? We live in a culture also that seeks to eliminate any need for faith in anything other than ourselves. We're confident in our pride that we can somehow solve all of our problems, 
through scientific research or education or a buoyant economy. And there's a deliberate and methodical attempt to eliminate all risk from our modern lives. It's expressed through the number of safety nets that we create around us. You know, we have pension funds and insurance schemes and a welfare system. There's an attempt to eliminate any level of risk in our lives. The irony is that you can never really eliminate faith. You can just displace it into something else. And so it's no longer in God we trust, but in gold we trust. The scary thing is that when we displace trust from God into these safety nets, God has a scary habit of messing up those safety nets every now and then and provoking us to come to a place of change and repentance where we're expressing faith afresh in Him. What we thought was predictable and unshakable suddenly in a, period, a short period of time becomes quicksand under our feet. Now those things are not wrong in themselves, but living in this kind of culture can immunise us against the need for faith. And so what God intends to be essential and indispensable to the daily living of our Christian lives becomes actually like an optional extra that we kind of look to at times of severe crisis and need. That's not the part that faith is called to play in our lives. We're called to walk in faith. We're called to express faith on a daily basis. It's not an optional extra. And it's not an optional extra in terms of church life. The scary thing is we can almost bring that kind of thinking into our church life at times. We can rely, if we're not careful, on methods and programs and administration and eliminate the need for God in church life. It can be true of our Sunday gatherings, can't it? You know, we've got the band and the musicians and the tech and the songs and the program and the plan. So who needs God? Now that may be a bit of a parody, it is a bit of a parody because... In the midst of all those things, we are trusting God and looking to God. But the reality is we just need to be careful that at the core of all that, we're saying, God, we need you. If you don't turn up in this place today, God help us. What's the point, really? And for God to turn up in one sense and for us to encounter God and know the kingdom of God moving amongst us, it means that as we gather in this place, we're gathering with this pivotal attitude of faith and confidence. We're coming expectant. God's going to be there. God's going to do something. God's going to change lives. Things are going to happen. Amen? That's how God wants us to approach Him. So faith is essential. Secondly, faith is mysterious. It's an attitude of the heart. Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that we do not see. That's a heart issue. It's difficult to pin down. It's mysterious. It's not always straightforward. You can't dissect it. And we see that so clearly in these stories. You see, it's entirely, it seems, the woman's faith that draws the power from Jesus for her to be healed of her hemorrhage. Jesus wasn't even aware that she was in the crowd. He wasn't reaching out to her, she was reaching out to him. He was on his way to Jairus' house. 
And so it seems it's entirely her faith that brings that breakthrough into her life as she approaches Jesus in that way, in the midst of the crowd. However, when he gets to Jairus' house, it seems that it's entirely the faith of Jesus that raises the girl from a condition of death. There's no faith active on her part. She's lying dead in her bed. But it's faith on Jesus' part that raises her from that. Having said that, we find somehow mysteriously that then this same Jesus who's raised a dead girl from her deathbed in his hometown can do no mighty work there. Why? Because of his lack of faith? No, because of their lack of faith. So you think, how on earth do we put these things together? It can all seem quite confusing. If he can create a resurrection entirely on his own faith, why is he prevented from doing any mighty work in his hometown because of the lack of faith in others? Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well, and yet we know that it's not that simple. And what I'm really appealing for us in is that we don't simplify the issue of faith. It's not a formula. It's not simply that those who are not healed are somehow responsible for that through their lack of faith. That is patently not the case. We must avoid reducing faith to some kind of simple, watertight, three-step formula. It is far more mysterious than that. It's powerful, it's essential, it's pivotal, but I tell you, it's mysterious. We need it, but we don't understand at times how it works. On the one hand, we must be challenged by the fact that it's absolutely essential and grow in faith and act in faith. But on the other hand, we must avoid reducing faith to some kind of simplistic formula. There are no three simple steps to faith healing. If there were, then Jesus in his hometown would have followed those three simple steps. Having said that, I think there are some principles here that can help us and I want to look at some of those Third thing I want to say then, as we look at some of these principles, is faith is first and foremost focused on the person of Jesus. You see, he's the central character here, isn't he? And throughout the Gospels, it's all about him. This is his story. Our stories, our experience, it's all about him. It's about who he is in his glory. It's about what he's done for us. He's the central character. Faith is not something in someone else or in some psychological thing. It's faith in the person of Jesus. It is all about Him. All of the essential faith or lack of it that we find expressed here is focused on Jesus. Jairus believes that he is no ordinary religious leader or teacher, but that this Jesus has the power to heal. The woman believes that this Jesus can do what the doctors for 12 years have been incapable of doing. Is that the Jesus that you worship and that you trust and believe in? She has such a high view of this Jesus that she realises, look, if I can just get close to him, I, I just, if I can just touch the hem of his overcoat, that's going to be enough. That's going to be enough. She has such a gloriously high view 
of who this Jesus is. And so she risks everything to press through that crowd and to grab hold of his overcoat. And in that instant, it happens. And she's healed. It's faith in Jesus. She believes that if she just touches the hem of his garment, it will happen. In contrast, the crowds in his hometown only see a carpenter. They have no faith in who he really is. True faith, then, is grounded in a person. It's rooted in who Jesus is. And the reason we have these stories, friends, the reason these things are written is so that we might understand and know who he is. That we might grow in our appreciation of his glory and his ability to change lives and heal the sick and transform worlds. That's the reason these things are written. These stories are given to us. So that we might know who Jesus truly is. You see, if you think Jesus is just a carpenter, you won't expect him to do much. You certainly won't expect him to do what's naturally impossible. That's the situation those in his hometown were in. And the more we consider who Jesus is, the more our faith grows. The Gospels reveal that he is not a carpenter, neither is he just another religious leader or teacher. The story of the Gospels reveal that he is God in the flesh. He is the eternal, unlimited, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God who spoke planets into being in a human nature. That's who Jesus is. And the only real conclusion you can come to if you honestly listen to the claims that Jesus makes about himself and you consider the unique quality of his life and the kind of things that he did is that he is indeed God. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if we are really convinced in our hearts that he is the Almighty, everlasting, all-knowing and extravagantly gracious God the Bible reveals him to be, then of course we'll expect him to do things. Of course we will expect him to change what naturally speaking is impossible. And so the most important question actually you can ever ask in your life is this. Who is Jesus? Let me ask you then, do you know Jesus? Are you a bit like the hometown crowd? Is he just a carpenter to you? Just another religious teacher? Or are you willing to stake a claim that he is who he claimed to be? He is in fact God. He's the one who can heal the sick. He's the one who can raise the dead. He's the one who can forgive your sins. Faith is rooted in Jesus. Faith is also spelt R-I-S-K, risk. Risk is certainly an element here that we can't avoid. Risk is all about taking untried initiatives. The synagogue ruler took a risk. By and large, the synagogue rulers were not favourable towards Jesus. In fact, they were often highly suspicious and at times branded him as actually demonic. Even Nicodemus, it seems, came to Jesus under the cover of night because he wasn't willing to take the risk of publicly identifying with this Jesus. And yet here, this synagogue ruler in daylight hours identifies himself with this teacher, Jesus Christ. He takes a risk. 
The woman with the hemorrhage takes a risk. She was not allowed by religious law to be out within a crowd. She was supposed to be quarantined and so she risks being censured and condemned by joining the crowds in the first place to get near to Jesus. She takes a risk. She takes an initiative. She reaches out in faith to grab his overcoat. Jesus himself takes risks. He risks ridicule and rejection by praying for a 12-year-old girl who is dead in her bed. To be expressing faith is to be taking risks. To be in unbelief is to be risk-averse. To become a Christian in the first place involves taking a huge risk. No matter how much you understand and how much it all begins to make sense to you, how much you explore Christianity, as it were, I'm afraid the reality is there's a stage in your life and in your journey and in your walk when you have to step off of the precipice. That was my story 18, 19 years ago. Came to university, came along to church. First time I'd ever been in a church where you know, it looked like people really meant what they were singing and things made sense as they were explained. But there came a place in my life where I realised, hold on, if this is really real, (laughs) I've got to get off this precipice. I've got to take this step of faith. I may understand it somewhat. The pieces are fitting together somewhat. But there's a step. There's a risk that I need to take. I want to encourage you this morning. You may be here on the Alpha. You may have been exploring Christianity. I want to encourage you to take a step of faith, to take a risk initiative and hand your life over to Jesus. And yet, risk is not something that marks the beginning of our Christian life. It's something that should continue in our Christian lives. And so when we're considering and being challenged by this and thinking through the issue of faith, we've got to ask ourselves, what place does risk play in my life? As I'm believing God for the impossible... As I'm believing God to move in my community, what place is risk playing? What untried initiatives am I taking? Faith involves risk. And a culture of faith is a culture of risk, in a sense. Now, it's not risk in our own ability. It's not confidence that somehow things will work out all right or may click and work. Like I've said, it is confidence in who Jesus is and when he speaks to us and when he calls us to something we can be a hundred percent confident that as we step out in that he will be with us amen next thing that we learn about faith is that faith sees opportunities faith sees opportunities and possibilities do you see opportunities this morning do you dream dreams Do you see possibilities? Jairus saw the opportunity of his daughter being healed. The woman saw the possibility of her hemorrhage problem being healed. Jesus saw the possibility of death itself being reversed and life returning to that little 12-year-old girl. And it seems that wherever Jesus went, hope was stirred. You see, faith is co-joined with hope. The two things go together. Faith generates hope for the future. 
And the language of faith then is a can-do kind of language. The response of faith is always yes. 2 Corinthians 1 says all the promises of God find their yes in Him. John Stott says faith looks at the problems in the light of the promises. You know, I worked for about four years in a company in Southampton um, before I became full-time part of the eldership here a couple of years ago. And uh, one of the things I always remember was how my, my boss would say, whenever you pick up the phone, before you even ask the questions and have the conversation, the answer is always yes. And so before you have an inquiry or a problem comes in or there's something that needs a product that needs to be there within a couple of days or a technical fault that needs fixing, your attitude is, yes, it can be done. Yes, we can fix that. Yes, we can get that to you. Now, you work out how you do that, the logistics of it and the mechanics of it afterwards. But the reality is, for us in the walk of faith, we've got to see that all things are possible for God. Amen? We've got to be a people that see opportunity and possibility. We've got to be a people that see that, yes, God can do something about this. A culture of faith is a can-do culture which creates an environment of hope. Now, this is not some kind of corporate business psychology. This is not some strange yes-man philosophy. We're not talking about faith in some kind of technique. We're talking about confidence in the ability of Jesus to do what's naturally speaking impossible. It's because of who he is that we can see wide open windows of opportunity when everyone else just sees brick walls. In Romans, Paul speaks of Abraham and this interaction of faith and hope. And he says of Abraham that in hope he believed against hope. So there's Abraham with a brick wall that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. There's a brick wall. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Faith breeds hope. And the answer to the question, can God do anything about this, is yes, he can. You may be here this morning and your life may be in a bit of a mess. You may be wondering whether God can undo and turn around maybe even the mistakes that you yourself have made. Well, the answer is yes, he can. Faith breeds hope. What we're to see, actually, is possibilities and opportunities. I want to just finish by mentioning three faith killers as we bring things to a close. Because although the passage speaks an awful lot about faith and the pivotal part of faith, it also actually helps us understand the kind of things that squeeze the life out of faith. Things that we need to be aware of and deal with in our own hearts. You know, some weeds are particularly dangerous, aren't they? I don't know if you... No, but the apparently innocent-looking duckweed can treble its mass in three days. There's another weed called Japanese knotweed. And there's actually a section of the M1 motorway that's closed and quarantined along the 
the side so that this dreadful weed doesn't spread. It can break through concrete and road surfaces. Well, here in, the pa- in this passage, we find some particularly vigorous and dangerous weeds that can threaten faith. What are they? Cynicism, number one. When Jesus goes to pray for the little girl and speaks out in faith, she's not dead, she's sleeping. I don't know if you notice the response of the crowd. I mean, this is a grieving, weeping, mourning bunch of people. What do they do? They laugh at him. That's the laugh of cynicism. I think it's a very British kind of laughter, actually. This is a very indigenous weed that we face. A particularly British disease. I think if there was a World Cup in cynicism, then we would win every time. Actually, on second thoughts, we'd get through to the final and then we'd lose on penalties. (laughs) Cynicism is a faith killer. If the cry of faith is can do and yes, the cry of cynicism is can't be done, no. Faith sees possibilities and opportunities where cynicism sees nothing but inherent problems and obstacles. Faith creates an environment rich in hope and initiative. Cynicism leads to hopelessness and inertia in a community. That's a challenge for us all, isn't it? Not to be squeezed into the world's mould in this respect, but to be a can-do people, free from this weed of cynicism. Second weed is familiarity. In Jesus' hometown, they were so familiar with this Jesus, this carpenter, They could not accept that he was who he claimed to be. It says Jesus could only lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, we'd be happy, actually, I think, with that outcome. But Jesus was hoping for much, much more than that. They were familiar with this carpenter's son. They'd seen it all. They'd heard it all. They'd seen him grown up in the village. They'd seen him go to school, they'd seen him learn his trade, he'd fitted their doors and windows, his sisters were right there with them. They knew it all. And they expected, as a result, nothing out of the ordinary from this Jesus. You know, it's a danger again for all of us, especially if we've been around for a while. The scary thing is, if we get so familiar with the mechanics of the Christian life, we can find actually pivotal, essential faith just dries up. If you've been a Christian more than 15 years, which I know some of you have, many of you have, the reality is you've attended over a thousand Sunday meetings. You've heard over a thousand sermons. You've sat in over 500 home groups. You've hopefully read through the Bible a number of times. You probably can't remember the number of conferences you've been to. Now, that's wonderful, but the risk with that is it can create such a familiarity that the kind of faith that spawns risky, radical, untried initiatives just dries up in our hearts. Last weed is materialism, which, in one sense, is an understanding of reality that excludes the supernatural. If it can't be seen, felt, examined, measured or analysed, it's not real. It's expressed in an inability to look beyond the natural. And these people were unable to look beyond the natural. I don't know if you noticed the questions. Where did he get these things? 
What is this man doing? How are these works done? They're not the kind of questions that Jairus asks. They're not the kind of questions that the woman with the hemorrhage is asking. You see, faith takes us beyond our need to have all our, answers, all our questions answered. It's not about leaving our intellect behind, but it's about happily trusting God to reaching out and reaching out to him, despite the fact that we don't have all the answers. So those are three faith weeds. Let me conclude then. If you're a bit like me, you're probably like the man in Mark 9 in response to this that says, I do believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And I want to encourage us to grow in what this story teaches us is absolutely indispensable if we're going to see increasingly the kingdom of God progressing and breaking in amongst us. I want to encourage us to be those that take risks, those that see opportunities like windows where others see brick walls, to say yes to all that God has promised us, to stay focused on Jesus because it's all about him, but to deal ruthlessly with these faith killers, cynicism, familiarity and materialism.